0: Good morning, Daylight Church and Daylighters everywhere. Thanks for tuning in today, and thanks for the couple people that trickled in the back this morning. One who didn't know we were having church, not having church. So, Amanda, thanks for being here. Thanks for being my crowd today. Uh, we're really excited this morning. Even though Daylight's not meeting in person, we're doing these uh, live broadcasts. We we did do our service project for Angel Trees this morning, and people pulled up in the parking lot and. Uh, The person putting it together said we ended up with more than enough gifts for these two precious kids that normally would not have. I see our sound guy raising his fists in the background. We're excited that we provided Christmas for a couple kids that normally wouldn't have Christmas. And so thanks for those that showed up to do that. And we're going to continue doing our service projects throughout the Christmas season. And normally we take our food truck out on the first Saturdays of each month to feed at a place in town where, where normally people don't get their bellies full too often. And next week, so we, we had some reasons that we had to push that a week, but next week we're going to be doing that, taking the food truck out, and we're going to be doing Christmas treats and candies. Uh, the, the people that we minister to on these weekends, they, they get their bellies full sometimes, but they rarely get sweets. So the times that we've had cookies or candy, they've been super excited about it. So we're asking people to put together some their favorite Christmas treats And to show up here Saturday morning at about 10 o'clock a.m. this coming Saturday with their Christmas treats and hands that we can take down there in the food truck. it will just be a couple of us in the truck. We're still going to social distance and be careful, but we want to make sure that we we reach out to people that that could use it during during the holidays. And so if you would, prepare some Christmas stuff. And if you're a part of the Daylight Church email list, you'll get an email about that later this week with all the details. So just keep that in mind for next Saturday. A lot of people have been asking about my father-in-law Randy. Randy uh, contracted... Two strains of the flu and COVID at the same time, and has been on a ventilator for a, uh, over a week now, and it's it's been an up and down battle. They had it down as low as 40% and up as high as 75%, and currently it's at 60%. So we're somewhere in the middle, coming back down from 75. So we're hopeful. Uh, he's sedated and and unconscious at this point, but we're they put him on a lighter sedation medicine yesterday, and so they're hoping to start trying to wake him up. And when they do, he's pretty uncomfortable and. And moving around quite a bit so just please keep praying for Randy short and, and ask God just to fill his lungs with life in Jesus name um, if, if you consider yourself a daylighter people have also asked how the church finances are going there's a lot of churches that have been suffering this year 2020 with covid and up until the last couple of months daylight has been doing just fine we've've we've been we've been okay each month we've been a little low but but not bad but the last couple of months have been we're down about 30 percent so they've been fairly brutal months and so if you consider yourself a daylighter, and you do contribute financially, now's a good time to continue doing that. And if you don't consider yourself a daylighter, just let this portion slide on past. But if the easiest way to give right now is to text 84321 with an amount, and it'll complete, you can just complete the transaction right there through texting, and it's forever after as easy as hitting send. I'm excited. I know some of our worship team's not too excited because they're Grinches that don't like Christmas music, but I'm pretty excited about the Christmas season no matter what. Uh, Thanksgiving was weird, not being able to spend it with, with extended family this year, just having cl- close family, but we still managed to smoke a turkey and enjoy ourselves, just about five of us at a table. And uh, Christmas is coming up, and we don't know what that's going to look like. But we, during the Christmas season here at Daylight, we always try to honor Jesus. And I, I, hopefully we do that every single week that we're here at Daylight. But but on on the weeks preceding Christmas, we try to talk about Jesus specifically and kind of the names of Jesus. We have this on-again, off-again series of of every December since our inception where we talk about the names of Jesus. When when Jesus was prophesied and when the angels came and talked about Jesus being born, this is what they said of him. They said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. So one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel. And, And in Handel's Messiah, there's a song called, For Unto Us a Child is Born, and it's Unto Us a Son is Given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so we've had this series going where every every December for two or three weeks we talk about the names of Jesus. And We've done Jesus, the Word of God, Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us, the Satisfier, the Renamer, the Prince of Peace, and so forth. And today I've chosen one that right at the beginning may seem a little odd, but it's Jesus the Judge, dun-dun-dun. And trying to tie in this idea that Jesus as judge is good news because... At the very beginning of Scripture, or at the very beginning of the Jesus story, it says, the angels said unto them, so, so when the shepherds were in the field and angels appeared to them talking about the pronouncement that Jesus was coming, this is what they said. They said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And when we hear the word judge, when, when, a, when a preacher gets up and says, Jesus is the judge, that does something to us. We, we we don't think good tidings of great joy. For some reason, that, that makes people nervous and uncomfortable is Jesus the judge sitting on his throne, hammer-fisted Jesus, ready to smite you. And 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 I want to argue today that that's not what, what it means that Jesus is the judge, that it is good tidings of great joy that Jesus is the judge. But all throughout the New Testament, we find that Jesus is the judge. In the book of Acts, when the apostles, when the early church was just getting started, this is what they said. They said, God ordered us to preach to the people and to testify solemnly that this Jesus is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. In 2 Corinthians it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's, it's a consistent theme. 2 Corinthians, he has fixed a day in which he, Jesus, will judge the world in righteousness through a man. So, God will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So, God showed that Jesus was the judge by raising him from the dead. And so, and this is just a spattering of scripture that you, you can go through the whole New Testament and find out that Jesus is the judge, the judge, the judge. But we have this negativity associated with the word the judge or judgment in. There's a firearm called the judge and the judge is made by Taurus and and the interesting thing about the judge firearm is it shoots for Colt 45 casings or, or ammunition Colt 45 bullets so it operates as a normal revolver filled with bullets but you can also take 410 shotgun shells and plug them into the the canister and and rotate it and and fire shotgun shells with it and so So they advertise it as a varmint slayer, meaning if there's a snake on the ground, you can shoot one of these shotgun shells, and and it'll it'll create a pattern about this big. But they also advertise it as a carjacking inhibitor, and so so they they, they recommend that the judge is the perfect car protection device because you can shoot it instead of a shotgun, which you have to pull out from under a seat or whatever. You can hold it like this and shoot it in front of you, and whoever happens to be at your window harassing you, it'll create a pattern about this big in their chest that close to you. And, and so it's the ultimate carjacking. And you can, you can, you can Google uh, carjacking the judge, tor- Taurus the judge, and you'll see these videos about people demonstrating what this weapon will do to a, a, a target that's close by. But this is, do you see, that's culturally what we think of when we think the judge, dun-dun-dun. We think the judge is something that puts a pattern, you know, a hole in somebody this big. We, we have this negativity associated with the word judge. And judges actually are a really beautiful thing, and judges are absolutely necessary for peaceful society to exist and for for laws to be enacted and, and safeguarded. And so we want judges in our life. We want a judge. We want someone, and we want proper judgment. And it's good news that Jesus is that judge. So when he says tidings of great joy, he's talking about Jesus being the judge. So to talk about whether this is good news or bad news, I want to talk about what job the judge, meaning what does a judge do? Like, why is it important to have somebody in the judge's chair that knows their stuff and is good and benevolent and kind? And to do that, I want to talk about one of the FBI's most interesting and wildest FBI cases and trials, and this has to do with the abduction and later bank robbery by a woman named Patty Hearst. So in Berkeley, California in 1974, in 1974 Patty Hurst and her fiancé were asleep at home when there was a home invasion. These, these people broke into their home and battered her fiancé and, and kind of incapacitated him and dragged her out of their house and threw her in the trunk of their car and drove away. And so what's really interesting, so they, they describe themselves as the Symbionese Liberation Army, and the Symbionese Liberation Army was a collection of individuals, and they are black or white and rich and poor and and from all walks of life, but they, they had this idea that capitalism was the bad guy, capitalism was the enemy, and so they wanted to crush capitalism. They had three main goals. One was to close prisons, one was to end monogamy, and one was to eliminate capitalism. These, these people that broke into Patty Hearst's home and dragged her in and threw him in the trunk of her car, these, these were their goals in life. And what's really fascinating about this trial that occurred was Patty Hearst was dragged into the, the trunk of a car and 59 days later, robbed a bank. She did. So they have they have video. You can see the video images yourself. You can Google Patty Hearst bank robbery, and you can watch the bank robbery online because they had cameras in the bank at the time. But she breaks in with these Symbionese uh, Liberation Army individuals, and she's holding a rifle, and her face is uncovered, and they rob the bank. And, and th- in the course of the robbery, one person was killed, and one person was critically wounded, and maybe maybe two was killed. I don't remember. But these the, the, the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army, these were bad folks. They would already killed two people by cyanide-laced bullets. So they would lace their bullets with cyanide and shoot people. So Patty shows up at the bank and robs a bank 59 days after being abducted. And so, as, as one person said, what's really fascinating about this is the kidnapped victim, who had spent 59 days blindfolded and living in a closet where she was subjected to verbal and sexual abuse, was charged with armed robbery. So she was abducted, thrown in a, thrown in a trunk, thrown in a closet, abused, and then part of the bank robbery. And so then the tr- what the trial came down to was how, how willing of a person was she in this bank robbery? Was she coerced? Was she, was she afraid for her life? Was she scared? Is that, is that why she did this? Was she um, brainwashed? Had they, had they gotten a hold of her and, and kind of warped her mind and tripped her out and so she wasn't thinking super, super complicated? a willing person? Was she willing and involved in this bank robbery. And it was a super, super complicated case. The prosecution said her actions seemed off. They, they said that she seemed like a free person. There were, there were video recordings and audio recordings of her elsewhere, and she didn't seem to be kidnapped. She didn't seem to be a captive. They also said that brainwashing was not a recognized defense and that she was an amoral person. So they, they questioned her morality. They had, they had uh, examples of her lying to the nuns at her school and, and, and co- committing all kinds of negative acts. And so they, they were saying she's not a good person. So this is what the prosecution was saying, that there's no defense of brainwashing, that she's not a good person, and she seemed like a free person. So was she free or wasn't she? It wasn't clear. But then the, the defense that brought up Stockholm Syndrome, which, of course, is when kid, people are kidnapped or held hostage, they start to relate, relate to their... They're kidnappers. They start to relate to the people holding them and start caring about them, and maybe that's what happened. They, said, they also said the event same stage, saying this. They said the SLA positioned her directly in front of the cameras of the bank like a prized pig, and it was the first time in the history of bank robbery a robber was directed by other robbers to identify herself in the midst of the act. So she, during the bank robbery, called herself by name, Patty Hurst, in front of the cameras like she was being paraded in front of them for some reason. So it, was just, it just became this very, very wild wild case and ultimately the the verdict came down after 12 hours of deliberation by the jury and it's been said that many wept many cried at the end of their conversations and so you've got this case where it's just not it's just not clear it's just hard to know what what was going on with this woman was she was she brainwashed by these people and had accepted them and and if she had accepted their their goals and their ideals. Was she liable for what she had done, or was was the brainwashing the reason, and she's offered mercy for that? Or was she a full participant from the very beginning? Was this some kind of big conspiracy? Or was she coerced? Was she terrified and scared, and so she did whatever she had to do in order for them not to hurt her? And that's all the stuff that brought out, that came out in the trial. And I I just, I bring that up to say that I wouldn't want to sit on that jury, and I wouldn't want to be the judge of of that particular case. And it's one of hundreds of thousands of cases that go on all the time. There's there's court cases all the time that are complicated and difficult. And so it's a good thing to have a judge that knows what they're doing. So when we talk about what job the judge, the judge is there for three reasons. Number one is to gather intel. They're supposed to bring the evidence to light. They're supposed to decide what is evidence and what isn't. They're supposed to bring information and allow witnesses and allow evidence to be shown. So they gather intel. They declare a verdict. So they say guilty or not guilty in a bench trial where the judge is... There's either jury trials or bench trials. In the jury trial, the jury says it. In a bench trial, the judge says it. And, and ultimately what we're talking about here with Jesus being the judge is a bench trial in general. But number three is to proclaim consequences. And so I won't tell you Patty Hearst, the end story of Patty Hearst. You can go read it online because it's really fascinating. It's really worth, worth reading. But at the end of the trial, the jury came to a conclusion, and then the judge had to declare the sentencing of the person, assuming she was guilty, which I guess I just showed my hand, right? So it tells the sentencing. So at the end, they declare the consequences. So judges gather intel, tell, proclaim guilt or innocence, and proclaim the consequences. And I think it's good news that God is the one that does that. I think we can honestly say that it's, we should fear not because it's tidings of great joy. Because of this, a bad judge is really bad. I think corruption in the judiciary would be one of the worst illustrations of a society that's faltering. Uh, if, if the judges are corrupt, everything is corrupt. Anybody can get away with anything as long as the judges are corrupt. And so a bad judge is really bad. And a bad God judge is the baddest of the bad. If God is corrupt, if God is mean or vindictive or evil or angry or, or out to get you, that's as bad as life gets. So a bad judge is bad. A God judge that's bad is the baddest of bad. But what we find in Jesus is the goodest of the good. And I know that's bad grammar, but it just felt right. He's the goodest of the good. He's he's gentle and merciful and kind and he knows his stuff. And so I wanna I wanna run through real quick these three things that judges do. Gather intel, proclaim guilt or innocence, and proclaim the consequences from the perspective of Jesus is on the throne and see if we don't arrive at the the in finality, we don't arrive at the place where this is the goodest of the good. This is a good story. Number one, gathering intel. Jesus happens to be perfect and benevolent when it comes to gathering intel. He wants all the intel out there, and He knows all the intel. You find all throughout Scripture that Jesus is om- omniscient, which means He knows everything. In First John 3, it says, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. In Hebrews, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knows everything. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. In my case, it's three. Even the hairs on your head. He he knows more about you than you know. He knows all the intel. He knows all the motives. So when we look at our own lives and we say, are we brainwashed, are we coerced, are we willing participants in, in the areas that we've blown it or... Or told God to tick off, or whatever it is that we've done. He knows everything about the heart and the mind behind it. He knows everything about your circumstances and what has led you to this point. He knows. He knows why you made the decisions you made. He knows. He know. He knows that there were decisions that you made in your life that you wish you hadn't made, and even while you were making them, there was a part of you that was screaming, "No, no, don't do this." There, he, he knows it all. He knows everything, and this is good news. You want a judge that brings out all the info. One of my not favorites, but to me one of the more interesting passages of Scripture is this message from Jesus where he's talking about these two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he's warning them that they're kind of wicked places, Jesus is. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, and woe to you means watch out, beware, bad news, right? Bad news, guys. He says, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and Ashes. So Tyr and Sidon were cities that were destroyed. And it says, if the miracles that I did had been done in those cities, they would not have been destroyed. They would have repented instead. They would have turned towards God. And he says, so I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And This is one of those passages that we're kind of like, okay, biblical names, biblical places. We kind of skip over it and don't think about it. But there's a really, really interesting component to this passage in that Jesus is saying Tyre and Sidon will be judged based on what they would have done, not what they did. That shows, that shows a judge that knows some intel, doesn't it? It says they'll be judged on what they would have done had different circumstances occurred. It's mind-blowing. It's absolutely revolutionary as far as how we view who God is. and what is God the judge that blows you away with his little gun because you're jacking up his car? Or is he the God that knows why you're there, how you ended up there, what circumstances led you to that moment, and cares about those things? And I think he's the second kind of judge. And this is glad tidings of good joy. It's good news. As far as declaring a verdict, he is also perfect and benevolent. He is good. He will never miss a verdict. This is good news. When it's talking about eternity, when it's talking about our lives and and the judgment of our lives in their entirety, we want a judge that never gets it wrong. How bad would it be if God blew it? How bad would it be if he blew it even once and throughout all humanity if he made a mistake? But he'll never make a mistake. I watched a, a brief court case recently online about a girl who had been brought in for some minor drug charges. And, and she was chewing gum and kind of disrespectful. And her posturing was like, I don't care. I don't want to be here. I don't belong here. And, and when the judge would, would ask her questions, she was flippant and kind of obnoxious towards him. And he charged her a fine. Instead of sending her to jail, he charged her a fine. So he made the correct verdict that, that you're guilty. And then when he, when he gave the sentence, he charged a fine. And she was clearly not happy with this fine because she yelled out some blank you. She, she yelled out profanity at this judge. And if I remember right, he gave her a couple chances. He said, he said, you can apologize for that and you can make it right or you can be held in contempt of court. And she yelled it out again. And, and she, was just, she was literally in contempt of the court right then. And so he said, okay, 30 days in the county jail, banged his gavel, and the bailiffs took her off. So she went to jail for 30 days instead of just paying a fine. The second video is her in front of the court the second time, after the 30 days are off, she's, in, she's been held in contempt of court, she spent 30 days in the county jail, now she's in front of the judge again, and she's apologizing. Apparently her lawyers and her family have advised her, you better apologize, you better try to make this right, and she did, she, and she seemed remorseful, she seemed, she seemed like she cared about what she had done and, and recognized what she had done, and so she was, apo- she was apologetic, and the judge was very compassionate towards her, and he said, now look, he said, he said, obviously there's some issues in your life, there's some substance abuse issues, there's some addiction issues. He said, let's, let's work on this. And he started, he, he, right there in front of everybody, started developing a program, working, working with her to get her the help she needed so that she can go on and thrive in life. Now, this was a judge who was wise enough to know that when she's doing all this and blowing her bubbles with her popcorn, her, 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 the gum in her mouth, and yelling F you, and and, and literally in contempt of court, that, that that was probably not the moment where she was uh, broken enough to get the help that she needed. But the second moment, he, he knew. He knew that she, she was capable of receiving what she needed to help. But it, shows, it sh- showed his benevolence. It showed that, that through, through it all, he had her, her best interest in mind and her best interest in heart. And sometimes having the best interest of a person means declaring guilty when guilty. Sometimes that's the best thing someone can hear is guilty. And here's, here's where some of the gospel and where some of the Bible gets, gets a little wonky is, it seems to indicate that we're all guilty and that we all need to hear that. It's, it's, a, it's one more of those consistent themes. It's, the prophet Ezra says, I, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. In James, it says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In Romans, it says, I all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And We've talked about this, this question quite a bit as we discussed the Sermon on the Mount this summer. Is, is this observation or is this condemnation? And a good judge observes the truth and declares the truth. And, and the scriptures teach us that all of us fall short of God, that none of us add up, that none of us have made right decisions consistently, that none of us behave properly all the time, that none of us emulate christ and it's important for us to hear that but it's not important for us to hear that so that we stand condemned it's so that we see truth because of what's next because of the declaration of the consequences and that's that's where a judge goes next is the declaration or the proclamation of consequences and again we find him perfect and benevolent and this is the part of the sermon that i was so excited about this weekend as i started thinking about it is there's this concept that C.S. Lewis introduced to the world called deeper magic. And the deep magic is the law of cause and effect. And we'll get into one of the quotes in just a moment. But the cause and effect rule of proclamation of consequence is that you did this bad thing, therefore this bad thing must follow. That's how cause and effect works. So when, when the girl stands up and gives the finger to the judge, contempt of court, Time in the county jail. That's what's described in the law. That's what she was due. That's what was, that's, that's the effect that followed the cause. But what we find in the gospel and what we find with Jesus as our judge is that he is all about breaking the chains of the law of cause and effect. We are no longer bound by the cause of our past actions. We are no longer bound to the decisions that we've made previously. We're no longer bound to, to the things that bind us, to the addictions that we hold, to the idols that we carry. We're no longer bound to those things. I saw this quote from Dr. Brian Melton this weekend. He said, One prerequisite of any religion that's worth my time and effort is that it must be able to blow my mind. And this is is the mind-blowing concept of Christianity that no other world religion really carries, is that the law of cause and effect, the chains of cause and effect, have been broken. Aslan, who, of course, is the lion and the main character in, in the Chronicles of Narnia says this quote, so the, the witch controls the land. She has perpetually frozen the entire world. And she now kind of owns this main character named Edmund because Edmund succumbed to her Turkish delights. He, tra- he traded his freedom for a moment of pleasure, basically. And Edmund deserves the effect of his cause. He, he has done something that has bound him. And in the, in the book, The line the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, if you're familiar with it at all, Aslan goes and he presents himself to these harpies and demons and, and terrible creatures and they shave his beard and, and batter him to death and leave, leave him on a, a stone-cold altar to die. And Aslan says later about, about this moment, because later we find that the, the altar is broken and Aslan has risen. And this is what Aslan says about it. He says, though the witch knew the deep magic, she knew the law of cause and effect there's a magic deeper still that she did not know. It says her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. Before the world began, before time began, there was this one cause that affects everything that Jesus came to reveal that breaks the deep magic of cause and effect. Whether you've invested in, invested and indulged in Turkish delight or not, whether, whether, whether you've totally blown life at all, whether, whether you've set, given the finger to the judge and said, F you, there's this greater law. There's this greater law of cause and effect, and it's found in the judge. It's found in Jesus, and he breaks the law of cause and effect. This passage we read earlier from the prophet Ezra where he says, I can't even lift my head because our sins are so great. It follows just a moment later in verse 13. It says, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved. In Hebrews, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We find out that the judge himself, the baby in the manger, grew up to be a man, experienced all the temptations that we have, experienced all the difficulties that we experience, and it says, and yet he was without sin. And that's the one who sits on the throne, is the one who knows what we felt. He, he's experienced the circumstances. He's experienced who you are and what you're about. He, he knows you. He knows everything. And he's the one that sits on the throne. And he's the one that declares the consequences. First Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's God's mercy that brings this new beginning. So the chain of cause and effect, the deep magic that says what you did has consequences. That's that's what our entire judicial system is, is built on. What you did has consequences. You must pay for your mistakes or you must pay for your sin or your rebellion or your wickedness or whatever it was. You must pay. Now we find out that God is saying, I will pay. And I don't understand the nature of the atonement. I don't understand how it works. I just know that it works. I know that when a person receives Jesus, and Jesus becomes active in their life, the law of cause and effect is broken. And you don't have to follow the chain. It doesn't have to be perpetual winter anymore. There's something new and something alive in this merciful, merciful judge. In Titus it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the good news of the gospel is that you're, the judge is your friend. He's on your side, he's benevolent, and he's perfect. He's never going to make a mistake where you're concerned. He knows your heart, he knows everything about you, which for some seems fearful and for some seems exciting. But to know that the judge is available as a friend is a huge bonus. If you were waiting to stand trial, how much more would you, how, how exciting would it be to know that the judge is a friend who knows you? It would be helpful to know that a person who cares about you and is benevolent towards you that has your best interest at heart, is the one who will be declaring the verdict and declaring the consequences. That is good news. That is good, good, good tidings of great joy. I saw this prayer that I'm going to ask you to pray with me here in just a moment from Thomas Merton. And it kind of encapsulates this idea that, that even, even in ourselves, we don't know ourselves. We, we can't even judge ourselves well, but God can. And so I'm going to read it to you and encourage you if you're watching online to read it along with me. It says, my Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you. Always, though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. It is good tidings of great joy and a Merry Christmas to know that the God of the universe, who is the judge that we will stand before, that holds us to account, is our friend that knows us better than he knows our, than we know ourselves, who is on our side and wants to see us thrive. He wants to see us do well. And because of that, the deeper magic was brought into effect that breaks the law of cause and effect. And you are no longer bound to what was. You are no longer bound to what was. What was is gone. There's a new beginning, a new resurrection. That's, that's the resurrection life of Jesus that's available to every person by turning towards Him and saying, yes.